everybody out there and welcome to the Nevermore podcast, the podcast arm of the Three Little Sisters. The Three Little Sisters is an independent publisher looking for unique and rare titles. We publish a ton of books right now. You should go check us out and find out what we have in store coming up for February at www.the3, that's the number three, littlesisters.com. Today on the program again, we have Xiao, Mulan, Bruvi, and Sarah Strickland, and we are going to be discussing the magnum opus. What is a magnum opus, really? Well, the dictionary defines a magnum opus as a great piece of artistic work. That's pretty broad. So we're going to drill down a little bit on kind of the problems with magnum opuses and how it kind of restricts authors in creating something new. Uh, We're going to start off this conversation with a very sort of leading and vague question. Uh, Is it a blessing or a curse to have created your magnum opus? Sarah, do you want to start here or whoever wants to start? I'll let Sarah go first if she likes. Okie dokie. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that once you have created this magnum opus, you know, yes, it, it garners all this attention and all of this, you know, publicity and popularity, but then on the other hand, you're expected to repeat that over and over and over. And it's hard for you to really grow as an author because, you're basically just expected to repeat that magnum opus over and over again. I tend to agree with Sarah. Um, She's right. It can be a double-edged sword where you're stuck in that circle of going around and around. Because, uh, for example, Stephen King is more known for his Dark Tower series than he is, say, for... um, Tommy knockers or you know 112263 or you know the the institute which is newer um, the stand some people don't realize that the stand is actually part of the dark tower and some people do know it's part of the dark tower and his whole set of books actually touch on the dark tower so he's stuck in that cycle and most people don't even realize that he's Richard Bachman as well Yeah, I agree with you, both of you, in saying that it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it does get you the money, look at J.K. Rowling. But then she's sort of stuck in this uh, perpetual machine where she has to keep recreating the characters, and she's doing that now to a lot of chagrin of the community. Because you then end up going back and reflecting on yourself and saying, like, ooh, I wish I could have, and then you're in this I wish I could have thing. And you're rewriting the same story over and over and over again, stuck in your own loop. So I think it kind of gets in an author's head and um, they try to outdo themselves or go back and finish things that they wish they could have done in the first round. And I think it it, it is kind of like a, uh, a curse in a way. And I do agree that they kind of get pigeonholed into like, well, then you have to just everything out of your mouth has to be gold. And every book that you write has to be a bestseller. And that's yeah, like really you're not allowed to, to suck. <laughs> right, that's right. You're not allowed to suck. And then what happens is that basically your ego gets inflated to the point where you can't take personal criticism. And then it becomes like a problematic thing for publishers who don't want to touch you because you've, you know, pissed off the community around you by getting in this egotistical mindset. So I think it it is um, more of a bad thing than a good thing. 
Um, but it has elevated some of the authors that may not have been elevated um, and made their work sort of uh, institutionalized as a, quote, classic. So we'll go on to the next uh, topic here, and we're going to discuss who decides what an author's greatest work is, because this is really problematic and challenging. Is an author's work you know, defined by, quote, the bestseller list, or is it defined by the community? Who decides what work an author uh, has produced that reaches the level of magnum opus? Well, for me, uh, I my opinion is is that the bestseller lists are all bought off, they're paid for, and quite frankly, they're useless to the general readership um, because they're paid for. It's whatever the publisher pays out, right? Um, for me, it's the readership. Look at The Witcher. Um, the readership is who decided that those eight books are Sapkowski's magnum opus. The same thing for The Dark Tower. That's the readership that decided that that was what they were going with, right? That that was their their interest, key interest in Stephen King. Um, look at uh, Anne Rice, The Vampire Chronicles. That was her magnum opus according to her readership. Nancy Nancy A. Collins, and most people don't know her name, but they know the Bl Sonia Blue series. Again, the readership is who chose that. It's not the publishers, it's not the author, it's your fans and your readership. I agree. I, I think it's really the community that decides what is considered a classic. Um, you know, it, I'll throw in some more authors to that list. You know, Anne Bishop. She's written several different trilogies, but she's better known for the Black Jewels trilogy. And that is the series that her fans have decided is her magnum opus. So she's constantly being asked to revisit that world and revisit those characters and write more about them. Um, whereas some of her other trilogies, her fans are like, yeah, they're good, but, you know, we don't care so much about them. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you too as well. And I will back up what Xiao said about the buying off of the bestseller list. There was a fantastic article written by a gentleman named John Idarola. He is the host of the Damage Report and works at uh, the Young Turks Network. And he wrote this amazing post about how uh, conservative books actually get to the top seller list. And they do this bizarre thing where they buy mass copies of their own book. And it because of the sales... It makes it appear that the book is extremely popular. So it's like a false way of pushing yourself to the top of the bestseller list. And also there's this force, and uh, he didn't touch on this, but I know it exists, of this sort of uh, anonymous group of people that decide on what book reaches uh, the level of being, quote, like a classic or important. And my daughters brought this up to me about how they do this in schools. No one really knows who decides on the school reading list. And to not know who's involved in choosing a classic is kind of problematic because you don't know what bias the person has going into it. And if that person may not like, you know, subject matter that's anti-Christian, for example, they could say, well, you can't read any of these. Or if they don't want to look at true uh, white colonization history, they may like up like basically blacklist books that don't fit into their narrative. So it's a problem when you have this 
weird censorship type thing behind the scenes that no one's quite aware who's involved uh, determining what makes a book a classic. So this is where the community is absolutely vital because parents and community members should be aware what books are on your school reading list and why and finding out what specifically has been blacklisted from your school reading list and perhaps getting your children access to those books in other ways because some of these books are really vital to read. Um, for example, they've tried banning like To Kill a Mockingbird like eight times mm-hmm. and um, that's a really important book to read if you want to understand uh, the true uh, nature and history of, of racism in America. That is like a vital classic that you should read. There's other books too like The Handmaid's Tale um, that are vital to read that we had to read as kids but these days there seems to be this almost... Um, blanket over children to try to prevent them from understanding history and making them dumb on purpose and it's it's really bad to think that some of the classics that we really loved are now being relegated to you know these banned lists so it's good for community members to maybe get involved talk to your school districts find out if there are books that are blacklisted and why they are blacklisted and who's involved in choosing your school's reading list because you might find some books in there that have some pretty questionable content that you might not want your kids to be exposed to because they're not accurate. And they're going to give your kids a false sense of reality. And that's not what any author really wants to get uh, for kids to get out of what they wrote. So um, I think there is that level too, where you may not know why uh, a book is quote elevated to the top. Like there's some books out there that I have to admit, I really hated uh, but the rest of the community loved, and I didn't understand, like, what is so great about this fantastical book. And you do wonder sometimes if there's, like, this forced narrative on people that it's great because we told you it is. And so, there, you know, I think you should question everything and take everything with a grain of salt and read it yourself. That's the only way you're going to know <laughs> if you like it, is to not look through the lens of others, but read it on your own. And I think some of these also get elevated to that level of classic uh, not necessarily because it's a good story, because, I mean, I've read some classics that I the storyline was terrible, but because there are other facets of it that are important to understand in literature, like character development, plot development, um, you know, using uh, how to write political events without shoving it down someone's throat, you know, there's... There's different facets to each of these, each of these so-called classic books, and even the ones that suck sometimes have those really important pieces that are, you know, what should be taught in schools as how to do this or how to write this. It's kind of ironic, but I think you could almost look at what Sarah's saying through an example of a film um, that was written by M. Night Shyamalan, where he, The Lady in the Water, where it talks about this kid being influenced by this particular book that was invented by a character that witnessed the lady in the water. And through that book, he he uh, caused so- social change. So there are books out there that exist uh, that have been written that might inspire one person to do something great. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what that book is going to be. Uh, there has been social and political revolutions because of books. So they, they are a vital part of our history and our culture and might spur inspiration for someone to do something absolutely amazing and fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the point is still valid that what you're saying, you really have to read it yourself through your own lens and 
really get out of it what the author is trying to convey. Even if the book is somewhat sucky or difficult to read, it's still vital to read it. You learn different aspects of things and you begin to question the world around you. And that's what a magnum opus kind of does. It makes you question things. It pushes your boundaries. That's the thing with all books. But the magnum opus is specifically might be placed there in an opportune moment to sort of edge somebody towards a particular goal. And that's, I think, really vital in, when you look at, you know, how magnum opuses are kind of evolved and how they became part of our uh, literary culture. Um, did you have anything to add to that, Sheila, or is that pretty much... Well, to reiterate <laughs> your your movie reference, um, take, for example, something a little more um, in our day and time, Death Note. It's Jap animation, it, but if you look at Netflix's version of Death Note, um, it's almost along the same lines as The Lady from the Water. It's a book that falls into this kid's lap. He can write names in it and how they die, basically, but he needs to know their face and their name personally. So, And, and that's changing things around him. And he actually takes it and runs with it and tries to change the world by killing off gang members and, you know, um, crime lords and everything. And he starts that way, but he doesn't realize that it also changes him as well because he's literally taking people's lives to mm -hmm. change the world around him so again that's kind of like the same the same concept that you were talking about books do change the world yeah and so on that note we were just sort of discussing in the realm of the older classics that have been sort of placed there whether purposely or unpurposely <laughs> and uh, these are books that have been considered quote classics and some of them I 100% agree with, and they should be read by every child on the planet, even if it is difficult to read, like 1984. If you don't read that and understand that what we're going through in uh, every country right now is relevant, <laughs> uh, you really need to yeah, and you really need to read it to understand politics uh, today and really to how to look through the lens of being critical of the information that's being given to you. Uh, 1984 is definitely up there on the list of you really have to read it. Um, Fahrenheit 451, another one that absolutely should be read. Um, this is a thing that's happening today. People are actually having book burning parties still. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really vital that uh, parents get extremely active right now and understand what your kids are being uh, prevented from reading. There have been books being pulled off of shelves with absolutely no explanation as why. Um, and, and this is uh, really critical to understand why uh, people want to control information through the destruction of novels. Um, because, again, novels are the way that people begin to question the world around them. Uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray, absolute classic, will teach you everything you need to know about how to write a, a suspenseful movie or a, a suspenseful book. It is the classic and which spurred on the, quote, suspense genre, and which has led to the rise of some amazing books and uh, some also really amazing movies. Um, we have other ones like The Count of Monte Cristo, excellent for understanding social class, uh, Emma by Jane Austen, sort of a Fun take on matchmaking during the Victorian period. And Great there's a Gatsby. ton of 
and the great gatsby yeah. you know there's there's a lot of on here and uh she found a giant list on goodreads that we'll post with this episode but it's really good to go like go through these and find ones that you might um have never heard of and want to read even if they are like i said difficult to read it, it is difficult to read shakespeare i'm not gonna lie mm-hmm. his his language was old um but uh if you're one of those people that doesn't mind because you're used to reading mythical books that are also outdated language, then it should be pretty easy for you to understand the, the Latin forms. You can also find, um, you know, books written by Shakespeare that have like modern footnotes that are exactly. Blind. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's what he means by <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotta love those, what were they called when we were kids? The cliff notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the cliff notes. They call it something else nowadays, and it eludes my mind. Yeah. Speaking of Shakespeare, uh, let's go across three different generations here for a magnum opus. It's all the same concept, but it's three different people, and you guys are going to be floored, because first it started with Shakespeare, and it's from his uh, play called King Lear. Now, from King Lear, it's Child Rowland to the Dark Tower came. His word was still, fee, fo, and fum, I smell the blood of a British man. Now, most people would think that, you know, Stephen King took the Dark Tower theme from King Lear. Not correct. He took it from Child Rowland to the Dark Tower came, a poem from Robert Browning. Browning wrote it in 1852. Shakespeare is way before that. And then you have King's Dark Tower, which was in the 80s and the 90s. So that's three generations writing about the same concept across 100 plus years. Wow. Wow. That's really cool to think of that. You know, history is kind of... <laughs> uh, repeating we, itself? Well, not really repeating itself. We were actually talking about this concept last week to, weekend when my daughter was actually asking about... Um, she's learning Egyptian stuff in school, so she was actually asking a question about, like, uh, how come the Egyptian gods all disappeared kind of thing. So we were discussing it, how history is relatively short um, when you consider the span of human history. We're only about a minute on a clock, really. Uh, in 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 relation to time, mm-hmm. uh, there's actually a con- um, somewhere a page I'll find it, but uh, there's a science project out there. I think it was through NASA that actually shows the amount of time humans have been here in minutes, and it shows this clock basically. But we've only been here for like ten minutes of time, really, uh, in relative terms. So uh, we're not very long. That's <laughs> my point. Mm-hmm. So when you look at our history. Um, the fact that every generation has been inspired by the one previously, that the, we have somehow, through ingenuity and spreading of our information, have shared stories through hundreds of generations, um, is kind of amazing. And it also kind of is a bit of an issue because it feels like everything that ever has been said or will be said has been said. And so you kind of are in this world of like, how is it possible to create anything new? But you don't really have to in a way. You're sort of being inspired by what has happened in the past and reshaping it to match the future. And that's where I feel like what you're saying, Sheila, it's it's a connection through time that you can evolve things and change things, but still have a connection to the root that makes it unique. And it's a fun part of history when you look at it that we are connected through a very short span of time. It's why you have reiterations of Frankenstein or reiterations of... Um, 
you know, other works Dracula. that have, yeah, Dracula, like how many versions of that, for goodness sake. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's not because people are copying. I think there's a mistake uh, in what co- the community kind of perceives as being a, quote, copy. It's, it's not really a copy. Look at it more that it's inspiration drawn from the same well, that we're all inspired by the same works that we read as kids and are inspired by history that has come before us. And we're just reshaping that history into more modern work, into a more modern version, so that we can create a classic that is meaningful to us now, not something that was written in the past. And I think that just applies broad spectrumly to a lot of the books that we read now. It's really difficult to come up with a new concept, like even J.K. Rowling. Like there's hundreds of books about a kid wizard, for goodness' sake. Uh, and there's other ones too that I feel are almost a duplication of a previous theory and so it's not really that they're stealing from each other it's just they read something 10 years ago and are like ooh I could take that and do something else with it and voila new genre and you are still basing it on a historical uh, precedent as basically is what I'm trying to say yeah, well, also, and to uh, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, okay. I'll finish first, and then I'll stop cutting off Sarah. Um, <laughs> to reiterate that statement, uh, when we were growing up, it was again Maya Angelou's *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Right nowadays, it's *The Hate You Give* that my teenagers are studying, which is along the same concepts of African American racism, uh, racism in general. Right, so it's the modern day. To Kill a Mockingbird is The Hate You Give. And Sarah, you were saying? Sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Um, I think, you know, on the on the subject of, you know, p- other, other authors being inspired by each other, I think there's so many common themes that we as human beings deal with every day, that we see every day, there's all of these very common themes that you find throughout all these classics and you're just basically seeing each individual author's take on that based on their own life, their own circumstances. You know, you could have a completely different take on the exact same theme from somebody, from people in different social classes, from people in different parts of the world. It really is just each individual's take on that very common theme. So, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, sure, but there are new ways to express them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I agree. I agree with what you two are saying, and I think it kind of sums up what we're trying to say about magnum opuses is that uh, they exist in, t- in a very particular space and time, but can be duplicated throughout history because every generation is going to have their own. But it's based on... Uh, previous concepts that have always existed and we're just revamping them to a new world and uh, whoever decides what a magnum opus is seems to be more about the community the readership and who really loved these books and the generation that sort of uh, grew up with them so when we think about the magnum opus what author do you think that is currently existing that sort of makes quote a king out of an author, and I, I'm not referencing the person king, but mm-hmm. uh, who crowns these authors as like, oh, they are the like rising tide that everybody needs to, you know, 
bow down because they're like the best on the planet. Which author do you think out there is the one who can kind of say that guy, you know, that that guy's the best? Well, right now, if you want to take an example, a direct example of that, uh, Stephen King is endorsing um, the author Janine, who did American Dirt. Uh, huge political brouhaha over American Dirt. She's a Spaniard. She's from Spain. Uh, she is Latina, but um, she's not Mexican Latina. And she wrote about a woman crossing the border between Mexico and um, the States. So everybody's upset in the Latina, Latino, or Latinx community that this person isn't a Mexican Latinx and is writing about their culture and they're all screaming cultural appropriation, but she's as much a Latina as anyone else's and she's just drawing off of what touched her as a story and creating fiction out of that it's not that she's appropriating their their culture she's taking a story that touched her heart that touched her soul and she wanted someone to hear their story even if it wasn't hers yeah i think she's um sort of getting a a bad reputation however she should have maybe just as my own devil's advocate point should have maybe had it read through the lens of a actual person um i know that she's it's it this is nothing to do with her personally it's just a thing that you have you have to kind of like let a broad swath of community read your work <laughs> not just one or two people or people close to you but have neutral parties read it and this isn't about censorship or whatever else but I think you have to take a lot of care when writing about immigrant communities or even writing about native-based communities without having them actually read it. And so I think she should have maybe just found like one group that she could have been like, hey, you guys want to beta read this thing and make sure that I'm not, you know, misrepresenting a fact because she did kind of make immigrants look bad. And um, right now, that's a really sensitive topic uh, uh, with the border. So, you know, I understand why she's getting flack. It's not fair to direct it at her necessarily. Um, I think it's just sometimes broad spectrumly, authors should do their best at reaching out to the community that might involve their story and checking with them. Like, does this look okay? Yeah, I don't disagree with your point. Yeah. And you know what? That might be actually be on her publisher. Because her yeah, publisher sort of actually picked up lies. the slack there yes. yeah. Yeah. instead of her. Because she wrote a story, her publisher vetted it, and now the publisher is taking the flack. Just to, and she's taking more flack than the publisher is. Should be the publisher taking the flack, not her. Absolutely. Right, exactly. No, that's what I'm... Um, you know, I just think it's important to try to just make just make sure that you're not like overstepping. So, so in your estimation, you think Stephen King is definitely a quote kingmaker who, if he endorses oh, yes. you, you're going to the top. I would I would hundred percent agree with that. Right now, um, he's endorsing her as well. This Janine author, I can't remember her last name. I'm sorry. <laughs> My apologies to her for not remembering her last name. And even Oprah Winfrey. Her book club is a huge magnum opus maker. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I personally think a, a good example of a kingmaker is Ray Bradbury. Anytime he signed off on a science fiction thing, it was considered to be a great, wo- uh, great work. So if he liked your thing, you know, you were in. In whatever upper echelon circle of people there are. Uh, same with Terry Pratchett. 
Like, if Terry Pratchett put his name on and endorsed you, that's a huge get for an author. Margaret Uh, Atwood? Yeah, Margaret Atwood. Like, Neil Gaiman talks about how Terry Pratchett, like, elevated him. Um, Neil Gaiman, I don't know if he endorses too many authors. I don't think I've ever seen him, like, fully on endorsing someone. But he has reviewed uh, other people's work and... What he says kind of holds a lot of sway. It's basically people who have like an extreme following and have a large fan base that sort of become like the quote king makers. Like if they say it's good, chances are that, um, you know, they're endorsing it with a reason. However, you have to be careful of this because sometimes uh, some publishers do this trick where they ask an author who works with them to read a summary of a book, not the actual book. And they get them to sign off on it, saying, like, oh, yeah, this sounds great, whatever, who cares? They've maybe read, like, five pages. And so it's not a true endorsement of the author. It's more like a, um, we want to elevate this guy, so we'll take this guy to endorse that guy. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it's a false endorsement, and you have to be really kind of careful to make sure that the author is actually following these this person that they're endorsing, that they're actually talking about them. <laughs> like, it's not just coming from nowhere, like, left field. Uh, so it's important to do that. Do you guys also think that sometimes kingmakers are the critics? Like, look at Edgar Allan Poe. The only reason he was elevated to the level he was was because of this critic who basically went out of his way to try to destroy him. And he was elevated because of that. So do you think that it's possible for uh, critics to kind of elevate you to this place of like... Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Again, bad, uh, American bad Dirt can is sometimes a prime be... example. Yeah, bad publicity can sometimes be the greatest publicity because then everybody wants to read it and be like, oh my gosh, why is this so bad? You know, look at Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson probably would never have gotten to where he is if he hadn't had so much bad publicity and so much negative crap thrown his way. But it made people more interested and more interested in what he had to say would he be where he is if he hadn't been, you know, shunned by people and banned from entire states? And who knows, you know? He made a point of being an ordained priest yeah. to peeve people off just yeah. for the bad publicity. <laughs> Beautiful People is a good song. I mean, you know, it, sometimes bad, bad publicity can be better than good publicity, you know? Exactly. Like, I think that sometimes um, any publicity is good publicity, but I do think that there is um, an opportunity for critics to kind of, like, rise somebody to the level of magnum opus. And, like, look at Siskel and Ebert. Like, for decades, they were the ones that determined, you know, how great a movie is, Mm -hmm. Um, even though half the time that they were wrong. But, uh, you know, the fact is people listened to them, and they were, like, the, quote, authority so, you know, don't don't knock. If a critic tells you a book is really bad, again, take everything with a grain of salt. Go read it yourself. Because the only one who's going to arbit whether it's good or not is you. Like, the only person who can determine whether you like it or not is you. You shouldn't let other people inform your opinion uh, and basically keep you away from books or novels or experiences that you could have had. Uh, I don't believe in, like, limiting yourself just because, you know, somebody told you, oh, this book sucks. Like, go read it yourself. And you might find out that, like, what are they talking about? This is great. Um, So let's go on to the last part of the magnum opus, the Widowmaker. So who do you think is really instrumental 
in making a book go horribly, horribly wrong. Like, do you think that this is, again, like we were talking about before, the author's ego, the community, the publisher maybe? Like, what happens when that author gets that one good one and then you find out that this author is a nightmare and is not a good person to be out there representing their own brand? Well, um, you know, media is a double-edged sword. Um, what they want is their likes, their clicks, their, you know, their their fans to be keep coming back, right? They they need that. It's always been like that in media, where you need yeah. that network rise in, you know, people looking, watching. And these days, society being so globally close to each other and... And, you know, able to at the click of a button to make a comment anywhere. It's going to be a combination of whether or not the person is egotistical or not. Whether or not the, you know, the publisher pulls a snafu. Again, American Dirt, where the publisher kind of screwed up a little bit. And, you know, now they're taking flack for it. Um, You've got, you know, other authors that are endorsing or not endorsing or turning around and saying, oh, I hated this book. You've got readership. You've got the public. It's everything rolled into one. So if all of that doesn't line up, then you've pretty much got yourself a widowmaker. I think think it starts with the community. Um, Cancel culture is alive and well right now. Cancel culture. And um, all it takes is the community to basically cancel an author. And then the media gets a hold of it. And it's just, it snowballs from there. But I definitely, I definitely think it starts with the community. Yeah, and I think a lot of it does lie on the author's shoulders. Because you, can, you cannot go out there and bash the community that you started. And you have to be very, very careful about what you say. Uh, I think we make this mistake in the world of understanding that like social media is forever and what you say online really counts. And it's not like you can just delete things and people forget about it. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a thing called the Wayback Machine and it still exists. And you can actually find uh, old tweets, old websites, old comments. You can find Facebook posts. I mean, it's not hard to find historical, uh, you know, evidence that you said something one time, long time ago. So you have to be very careful with the world that you created and the community that follows that world. And you can't just turn around and decide, you know, at the drop of a hat that you're going to change the entire uh, meaning of what you wrote. I mean, the two greatest examples of this have been J.K. Rowling and Anne Rice. I mean, the day Anne Rice turned around and said, oh, by the way, I'm Catholic and I don't really believe in vampires anymore. Like, she destroyed everyone's, like, world and and nobody really understood her she was just and she's gone now nowhere like who follows Anne Rice anymore hardly anyone so um and the same with J.K. Rowling when she got involved in quoting these stupid tweets from these people that don't believe in trans rights she screwed up and she can't go now unopen the door she started Mm -hmm. and this is the problem once you screw up that screw up just snowballs to a point where you can't control it anymore. It's the concept of one screw up denounces every other good thing that you've ever done. And there's, it takes a thousand good things to undo one screw up. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you should just, I'm not saying that you have to live your life in lens of the community and, oh my God, you can never speak and there's freedom of speech is just gone. What I'm saying is you you have to almost split yourself and compartmentalize and be two people. You can say whatever you want in the privacy of your own home, but when you go out there, there are still consequences to your words. Just because there is freedom of speech doesn't mean it's freedom from consequences. You have to remember what you're saying and be very careful with your words because you're going to affect a community of people that you do not want the anger of, like you just don't want that in your life. So it's very important to make sure that you're self-maintaining, but I do believe it's sort of a mix, like you guys said, of between the community and the author. Sometimes the publisher um, in writing descriptions may not understand the book and so sells it a different way. A good example of this is um, when Neil Gaiman put out Northern Mythology. I mean... I think the world was just confused by it. The publisher sold it as almost a work of fiction. The way they wrote the descriptions and the press releases, you would think it was just like American Gods or something. But when you read it, you're like, oh, wait, this is actually nonfiction. He's actually trying to understand the myths. And it came off weird and and nobody really understood it. And he kind of took a huge hit from it. I Um, think it was... A combination of it wasn't marketed correctly it wasn't explained correctly exactly so he did basically what 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 he did was you know he kind of tried out that very old storytelling technique where you take the framework of an existing myth and you you know build your own version of it but it wasn't marketed correctly. If it had been marketed as, you know, hey, that's what it is, it probably would have been much more successful simply because people would have loved, okay, hey, this is Neil Gaiman's version of the story about Thor and the wedding dress. I can't wait to read this. But yeah, it true. wasn't marketed that, <laughs> that way. So it was just very odd. Yeah, again, it was just sold as this bizarre work of fiction. But really, actually, what it was is a a very, very noble attempt to retell the stories in a way that um, made the narratives more flushed out. Like a lot of the ways he wrote the myths are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I actually prefer them to the Edda. They're so good. Yeah. But but he left a lot of weird things hanging that I kind of wish he took a little... Like, if you're going to go that far, go the next step. Like, he he stopped short of revealing that little tiny bit of fiction that he was already weaving. Mm -hmm. And so it just kind of felt like he was trying to be respectful of the myths, but not willing to walk away from his narrative style of writing and therefore not able to kind of resolve the two conflicts in his head and giving you a book that sort of just fell short. And I I respect him as an author. I love all of his books. But for me, it was like, why? Like, I would have I write this as a, like, fiction. I don't care. These stories are good. But, like, don't try to sell me that all these are true because they're not actually based on, like, really not really based on the Edda. <laughs> so, like, let's just discount that. That's fine. Um, you know, I think that's where he made the mistake. So, Again, what's this is interesting about that, though, is that, again, you have this double-edged sword of the magnum opus because a lot of people consider American Gods to be his magnum opus, even though he's written, you know, countless other absolutely beautiful stories. American Gods really kind of launched him to a broader audience. 
Yeah. So when he did Norse mythology, people kind of expected him to really stay in that American God's vein. And but if you turn he, if you turn to the graphic novel community, they'll actually tell you that Sandman is his oh, absolutely. magnum opus rather yeah. than American Gods. And I would actually agree with that. I think Sandman is definitely his his magnum opus, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm still in the American Gods camp. Like I Sandman is beautiful. For me that book, um it, it came along at a time in my life where I was really conflicted spiritually. So for me, that book had a lot more meaning than I, than it probably should be given. <laughs> but uh, it just came along at the right time. And it allowed me to open my mind to the possibility that uh, gods were just more than fictitious stories. So it kind of allowed like a little piece of myself to be opened up through his writing. So I think, I think for me, that's why it kind of holds still meaning. Like I liked Sandman too, and I love Coraline. But uh I don't know. There's just something about American Gods that's uniquely special and um, really does portray Odin and Loki the most accurate portrayal I have ever seen Yeah. Uh, through any film <laughs> or any novel. Uh, they are the most accurate. So I, I do give him credit for giving us those. Uh, so with all that said, you know, we hope you enjoyed that these uh, episodes as we dive into the various writing mythos and related genres and on the next episode we're going to dive into that deadly woman that woman with the high heels the femme fatale so that's it for this recording we encourage everyone to take a look at our website and check out what we're doing all february long because you're gonna really like it every friday we're going to be releasing a free digital edition of one of our books you can then grab it on amazon for free and take a read maybe give us a review or two because that helps our books uh, get on that amazon bestseller list and that one is not bought in folks that is definitely community driven so we need that community to speak up when they find a book that they love and give us a little thumbs up and that's all for this episode thank you very much for joining the nevermore podcast